following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. I pray this Christmas season, Father, that we would be reminded to sacrifice your dear Son, and sending Him to become a man, to give His life for men. And pray, O Lord, to this coming Christmas concert this weekend, that, Lord, You would bring many to that concert, that Your name would be lifted up and exalted, that Jesus Christ would be made known to, Lord, our families and friends that we invite and bring. And, Lord, that You would do a work through that. Lord, now as we come to Your Word, Father, please, please give us a greater picture of You, Lord, may we be in awe of you as we see how great you are. And Lord, help us to understand and apply what we learn from in Amos. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, uh, it's going to be our last with Brother Amos. Um, I've really grown to like this guy. You know, he's a rugged herdsman from Judah one minute, and the next he's commissioned as a prophet to the people of Israel. And when God called him, what I appreciate is he went, and he went without complaint. And when he went, he likely first journeyed about 25 miles north to Bethel, and that was not only one of the closest cities in Israel to him, but it was also one of the most strategic, for it was the religious center of Israel. It is a place in which the main altar, the main temple was housed. It was the location where worship was central, the high priest of Israel was located there. And the declaration that God gave to Amos for him to proclaim to the people of Israel was not an easy one. Throughout this book, we've seen that, right? His message of judgment over and over and over. He declares that God was going to come in judgment against them for their oppression of the helpless, for their hypocritical religious practices, their immorality, their idolatry, their greed, the evils that existed within the monarchy and also within the leaders of the people. And over and over and over again, Amos warns them and tells them God's going to bring judgment. But Amos' hearers, they they saw nothing wrong. For them, times were good. God was blessing. And the real problem was this guy Amos, who kept telling us that we're in trouble. Last time we looked at Amos in chapter 7, they basically told him, Amos, we're done with you. Just leave. Go back to where you came from. We don't want to have anything to do with you. So Amos, though, wouldn't give up. And in these last three chapters, uh, we have in his book five visions that Amos was given by the Lord to deliver to the people of Israel. We looked at the first four visions last time in chapters 7 and 8. If you remember back, the first vision that Amos was given was one of locusts, a locust swarm. And he saw in the the vision how they were devouring the land and, and the devastation was so great. At one point, he begged God, forgive the people. Stop. Don't don't bring this devastation and so the lord relented second vision that he saw was of a great fire one that destroyed not only the land and the crops but one that was so powerful it was licking up the water sources within the land and again as amos watched this vision unfold he pleaded with god and and begged him to stop and so god relented and then came the third vision the vision of the plumb line That vision that represented the measurement. God was going to measure his people in Israel against his righteous standard. 
and would judge them for how they did not meet it. And in this vision, things changed a little. Amos did not appeal, but rather he simply responded to a question that God had asked him of what he saw. Because God said in this vision that he would not spare them. Then we had the fourth vision, the vision of the basket of summer fruit. That summer fruit represented the last harvest of the agricultural year in Israel. And it was meant to represent that Israel was coming to an end. And again, in that vision, Amos did not appeal because God said he would not spare the people. And then in chapter 9, we come to the fifth and last vision that Amos was given and that he delivered to the people. And it is one which serves as a climax, not only to the first four visions, but to the book of Amos as a whole. And so if you would please stand with me as I read from Amos 1. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 10, the vision that he saw. Amos says this, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And he said, smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. Though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they may hide on the summit of Mount Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. Though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. And the Lord of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts and all those who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt, the one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not to me as sons of Ethiopia, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought Israel up from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Arameans from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful nation, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. And we'll stop right there for the moment. You can be seated. Here again in these first ten verses, we have the same theme that he's been emphasizing all through the book. And what theme is that? What is it? Judgment, right? Judgment, yet again. He's declaring judgment. And the question I have as I was looking at these 10 verses is another one. Why another one, Amos? I mean, wasn't it clear enough from the from the third and fourth visions? Or how about all the other messages that he's delivered? Was not his message of judgment enough to show that it was game over for Israel? Why yet another vision that gives what seems to be the same message? Well, if you look down at verse 10, it shows that many... We're still saying, you know what? The, the calamity Amos is talking about is not going to overtake us. Disaster is not coming. Everything is fine. Nothing bad is going to happen. You see, they, they didn't get it. They still didn't get it. They thought that their privileged status as God's chosen people would protect them, despite the many, many warnings that God gave them through Amos and other prophets, by the way. And so here, God gives Amos one last vision to tell 
God's people, that judgment is coming no matter what. Our first point today will be these first 10 verses, verses 1 to 10. And that point is that God's judgment is unavoidable. And the second point that we'll get to later in verses 11 to 15 is that God's restoration is also certain. And notice here, we can see a difference in the structure of this fifth vision. The first four visions all begin with the same phrase, the idea, the Lord God showed me. But if you notice this vision in verse 1 of chapter 9, it begins with the words, I saw. And also, as we look in these visions and compare them, in the first four, there was a dialogue between God and Amos, right? The first two, he pleaded for God to relent. In the second two, he responded to a question God asked. But in this fifth vision, there's no conversation. Only God is the one speaking. Notice the progression in these five visions. The first two, again, Amos intervenes for the people. In the second two, Amos replies to a question God asks him. And then in this fifth vision, Amos says nothing at all. Amos moves from seeking to persuade God to simply uh, responding and affirming what he saw to God and to finally watching in silence. And that progression is to send, meant to send a message to his hearers as well, that this is the last and final and emphatic message that God isn't messing around, that he's not making things up, that he's not threatening without being uh, without wanting to carry it out. That judgment was unavoidable. And in verses one to ten, Amos shows that it is unavoidable based on the nature and the character of God. Verses one to four, we see that God's judgment is unavoidable because God is omnipresent, which means what? God is everywhere. God is everywhere. The vision that Amos sees in verse one is of the Lord standing beside the altar. The Lord there is the word Adonai, a title for master. He's likely seeing the angel of the Lord who is standing next to an altar. And it wasn't just some random altar in Israel. The article, the definite article is in front of the word for altar, meaning it is the altar. It's the chief altar, the main altar in Bethel, the religious center of Israel. It was the primary altar that was first placed there by King Jeroboam about 170 years earlier. And what I'd like to do is have you uh, keep your finger in Amos, but go back to 1 Kings 12. I want us to see that day when this altar was built. There are some interesting parallels that we can take note of. This took place right after the ten tribes broke away from the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, when under rebellion against Solomon's son Rehoboam, the people of the north became their own nation, and they appointed a man named Jeroboam to be king over them. And Jeroboam was concerned. He was concerned about the people reunifying. And so we read this in 1 Kings 12. We'll be reading beginning in verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's concerned, right? He doesn't want reunification. He kind of likes being king. And so he wants to establish something to keep him there. So it's very ingenious what he does here. So the king consulted talked to his advisors and he made up two golden calves and he said to them that is the people it is too much for you to go up to jerusalem behold your gods O israel that brought you up from the land of egypt now there's a deja vu moment he set one that is one of these calves in bethel and he put the other in dan that is the most northern tribe in israel so he has one of these places of worship to the far north in israel 
and one to the south. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he made. This is interesting here. Jeroboam establishes this religion very similar to the one that they were used to when they were in Judah, when they would go to the temple. He added another feast. He put it in a different month. He, he built these altars and he set up this religion so that they would not feel the need to go back to worship in Jerusalem. And then he builds this altar, the altar. It's the same altar that Amos saw in his vision. Verse 33, he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. Now listen to this. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel. Does that sound familiar? By the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Quite a message that he came to bring them. You got the scene? Here's Jeroboam. He's dedicating the altar. He's sacrificing, burning incense on it. All of a sudden, this guy comes from Judah nation to the south, and he proclaims a word against what Jeroboam was doing, and he points his finger at the altar Jeroboam was sacrificing on and declaring that its destruction would come. And he said ultimately it would come through Josiah, which was about 300 years after this point, 130 years or so after the time of Amos. It's interesting, the parallels that we can see here. Here's Jeroboam. He's standing beside this altar, the main altar in Bethel. He's offering sacrifices, carrying out his own false religion. God brings a man from Judah. And where was Amos from, by the way? Judah. Hmm. And now, 170 years later, God brings another man, Amos, from Judah to rebuke Israel for continuing to practice that religion that Jeroboam established 170 years before. And so Amos now has this vision. And in this vision, he sees the Lord standing beside that same altar, the same altar Jeroboam once stood by. And he declared an end to this place of false worship. He says in verse 1, to smite the capitals. Those would be the, the rounded tops of the pillars that supported the roof of the temple. He says to destroy them. And as a result, if you destroyed the pillars, what would happen to the roof? Come down. And he says... Have that roof come down upon the heads of the false worshipers. And if any escape from that destruction of the temple, they will be killed by the sword. Then he says in verse 2, If any outside of that place think that they can escape from the judgment of God, God says in verse 2, You know what? Even if you could dig a hole to Sheol. Sheol was often used in the Old Testament to either describe hell or the grave or simply a metaphor for a deep pit in the bowels of the earth. And I think that's how it's being used here. He said, even if you could dig to the center of the earth or even if you could ascend high up into the heavens, you can't get away from me. I'm everywhere. 
reminds me of Psalm 139, verse 7, where David said, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Or if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Now the tone in verse 2 is, these aren't plausible. There's no way that a person could dig to the center of the earth or to ascend to the highest heavens. In verse 3, he moves to the plausible. That is for the person who would say, well, okay, yeah, I, I can't go up into the heavens, but I can't hide on a mountain. So he says in verse 3, if they could reach the summit of Mount Carmel, that was a mountain located in the northeastern tip of Israel. It was one that was known for its uh, thick forests and also for several caves that were contained on it, ones that they could hide in. God says, yeah, if you were to go to Mount Carmel, try to hide, I can find you. Or if you jump into the Mediterranean Sea and swim to the bottom, I can get to you there too. The point here is that God's judgment is unavoidable. Why? Because He's everywhere. He can't be escaped from. This idea of God's omnipresence is because of the fact that God is spirit. He doesn't have spatial dimensions. He doesn't have physical form. He is at all places at all times. You can never get away from him. And like those in Amos's day, there are many today that have this concept of God as a physical being that is contained in one place. That he's, yes, a super being, and that, but if you're clever enough or fast enough or resourceful enough, you can escape him. But let me say this to those who believe that. And if any who have not turned from your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to any who have not sought forgiveness for your sin, know this, that there's no place in this universe that you can get to where God will not find you. He is everywhere. Don't be foolish enough to think, well, I'll be one of those that will slip through the cracks, or I'll be one of those that can escape his notice. I'm just going to hide behind the guy in front of me. That won't be the case. And fellow believers, this is a key truth we need to remind ourselves of as well. The truth that God is everywhere. For what? Let me ask you this question. What do you think is one of the greatest deterrents to sin? If you're faced with a temptation, what's one of the greatest deterrents not to give in to that temptation? Someone watching you, right? If someone were to see or know what you were doing or about to do, that's a wonderful deterrent. For sin, isn't it? And just think about this for a second. There's a verse in Proverbs 5.21 that says this, The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Now, that just isn't guys there. It refers also to ladies. All right? The ways of a man or a woman are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all their paths. And think with me about this for a second. If we would just but meditate consistently, frequently on that very Basic truth, as articulated in Proverbs 5, or as we read from David in Psalm 139, it says that, right, closing a door or turning out a light or or whispering, none of these escape God's notice. If we really meditated on the fact that God is everywhere and sees everything, how do you think that would affect what you click on? How do you think that would affect how you respond when you see a bottle or are tempted by a pipe? How do you think that would influence what you say to your spouse or to your children if you know that at that very moment God is there? How do you think it would change your work ethic when the boss is not around or even when he is? 
How do you think it would impact your response to others who offend you or irritate you or sin against you? How do you think it would affect your thought life if you knew that they were those thoughts were on a screen before the throne of God? And they are. You think about this truth. This truth is a liberating truth. Oh, how if we meditated and thought about this and reminded ourselves consistently of it. Oh, how this truth would stop many a sin, wouldn't it? It's the first thing we forget or choose not to think about when we pursue temptation. It's that God isn't watching. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, memorize Psalm 139, 7 and 8. Memorize Proverbs 5, 21. Because those are incredible weapons in the battle with temptation. Looking back to Amos. God's judgment, he says here in these verses, it's unavoidable because God is everywhere. He cannot be escaped from. God's judgment also is unavoidable in verses 5 and 6, he says, because God is omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. These two verses in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9 are really a doxology of sorts. There are two other passages in Amos where we see the same kind of thing being talked about. Amos 4.13 is the first one where it declares, For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. There's a second in Amos 5, 8 through 9, which says, He who made the Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who darkens also day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. It is he who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Those two passages along with the one we have here in Amos 9, 5, and 6. They deal with a similar theme. They have similar phraseology. And they are all referred to by uh, commonly as the creation hymns in Amos because they all center around God's interaction with creation, either in creating it, sustaining it, or controlling it. And here in verse 5, Amos is reminding the people of God's power as seen in how he controls his creation. Notice in verse 5, he says that with but a touch of his finger, the land melts. Uh, The word there is the idea of to waver or to be moved or agitated. It's kind of the picture when an earthquake takes place. And if you're looking at a mountain during the earthquake and there's tall grass and how the grass would wave on the mountain, it gives that picture. I think Amos is describing here an earthquake. It's a place where a situation where he is shaking the earth and he describes it as he can cause the land to rise and fall like the river Nile with but a touch of his pinky. Verse 6 describes God's creation and control of the heavens and the seas. And, and this hymn here is placed in Amos because it reminds his hearers that God's judgment can't be avoided. His judgment can't be stopped. He's powerful enough to move earth and sea without even breaking a sweat. And reminds his hearers that God is not a created thing because he's the creator. He's not one who needs to be sustained because he is the sustainer. He's not one who needs to rest and gain his energy because he is the source of all energy. And so as he says in verse 5, he is the Lord of the Lord God of hosts, which is a term. It's a Yahweh, master of the armies. It's a phrase that that represents his exalted nature as Lord of every being in the entire universe. God's judgment, Amos is declaring, is unavoidable because God is all-powerful. And then in verses 7 through 10, Amos shows God's judgment is unavoidable because God is just. 
He is just. Notice in verse 8, God says He will destroy the sinful kingdom of Israel. And again in verse 10, God says all the sinners of my people will die by the sword. See, God will not let their sin go without a response. God is going to respond to their continual rejections of His warnings and to uh, their, their continued rebellion against Him. We think about, we've talked a lot about in Amos about all the injustice that was taking place through the people against others in Israel, right? And for God to look upon that injustice and not do anything would be unjust on His part, would it not? And so God says, I, I'm going to deal with those who have sinned. Verses 7 to 10 reveal the error of those who were deluded into thinking that, well, God will never judge us. We're the privileged people. We're Israel after all. Verse 7 shows, though, that in many ways they're not much different than the nations around them. He he says to Israel in verse 7, you are as sons of Ethiopia to me. Uh, Ethiopia there in Hebrew actually is uh, Cush. It's not where modern day Ethiopia is located. It's actually a little bit to the northwest of there in the Sudan, just south of Egypt. It's a fairly remote land, and I think Amos notes it here because it'd be a place that the Israelites would think of as remote and far away, of no consequence. And God's saying, even the folks that are there, you're the same as they are, Israel. They're no different. He continues in verse 7 to say, just as he brought Israel up from Egypt to the land of Canaan, so too did he bring the Philistines to the land that they were located in, as well as the Arameans to the place where they lived. His point being that even these pagan nations, your very enemies, I'm the one that orchestrated where they now live, just as I did for you. You see, Israel, you're not a lot different. Israel had mistakenly had the notion that God's grace upon them was because of something inherently good within them. And that they were a special people and that they had this false notion that God would overlook their sin because, again, after all, we're we're Israel. We're the ones that God brought out from the land of Egypt, that God gave this land of Canaan. We're the ones that God promised to bring blessing and glory and and rich crops and agriculture. And look, that's what's happening. We're the ones God promised would dwell in this land securely. And look, look at our military. Look at our strong borders. We're dwelling in security. No, no, we're fine. God's not going to judge us. Let's go ahead and continue in the way we're going. They had this attitude of uh, once saved, always saved. And I say that not in the sense of, of course, any who God has saved, he will keep. But there are those, I think, that take that phrase and that idea to think, you know what? I'm fine. I'm in. I believe that Jesus has forgiven me. I believe in the cross. And so I'm fine. I can do what I want. And we have to be vigilant against this kind of attitude because it can creep up in our own hearts, can it not? Paul combated it in Romans 6, 1, when he asked the question, Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Again, there are some in the church who think that because I've confessed my sins to Jesus, because I believe that he died on a cross and rose again in three days, because I continue to participate in church, read the Bible, that now I I can do what I want. I'm going to heaven. I'm fine. I'm not in danger. I remember sitting across the table from a man a number of years ago who was on the way to leaving his wife and three children for another woman. And he tried to excuse it by saying how bad his wife was and even that, you know, our marriage isn't in the will of God. And he tried to explain how that was so. And he said, after all, God wanted him to be happy. 
You know, and I showed him from Scripture, no. I showed him that adultery is a heinous sin against God and against your family. I talked to him about and showed him that holiness matters more than so-called happiness. Now, at that point, he realized he had no excuses. So he looked me in the eye and he said this with great resolve. He says, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but God will forgive me anyway. He was serious. I was dumbfounded for a moment, speechless. Just the arrogance, the presumption, the trampling of the cross. And I said to him, stop spitting in Christ's eye. Wasn't that loud, but I was pretty firm. (laughs) I said, nobody, no one who loves Jesus would ever say that. If you really understood his sacrifice for sin and what it cost him, if you really knew and believed how evil sin is, you would never say that. I told him, I fear for your soul. And with that, he got up and walked away. Brothers and sisters, may we never get to a place where we use God's grace as a safety net for sin. May we never presume on His grace, but always be humbly grateful for His forgiveness. Amen? Anyone who would have the thought that I'm just going to pursue this sin because God will forgive me anyway, I, I would question, do you know the right God? That's not an attitude of His children. Looking back at verse 8, God says of apostate Israel that she is a sinful kingdom which He would destroy from the face of the earth. Again, a pretty direct statement. Could he be any more plain with these people? It's done. I'm going to destroy you. Same word he used earlier for the Amorites. Those hearing Amos' words, I mean, could have no doubt at this point that God meant business, that they were not going to avoid judgment, that it was coming. And as Amos spoke to the people, remember, he, he spoke to these crowds that would be mixed with many who were running apostate against him, but also those who were, had been faithful to God. And I can hear their faint voices in the back of the crowd as they're hearing all these messages of judgment and thinking, what's going to happen to us? We've been faithful to love and serve the Lord. Are we going to be destroyed too? And we see at the end of verse 8, Amos says, God says through him, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. And then in verse 9, he gives this illustration, this picture of, of grain being uh, um, shaken through a sieve, that the good grain would fall through the mesh and the debris and the rubble and the stuff that he wanted to get rid of would stay within the sieve. Or sieve, I don't know. How do you pronounce that word? It's a sieve, right? Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> I always, you know, anyway. Okay, but sieve, sieve. Well, S-I-E-V, you know, it sounds like sieve. Uh, anyway, okay, so there, let's picture the sieve. I almost said sieve. That was being sorted, the grain. The grain represents the faithful in Israel. And that they would be collected, what was, that they would go through the mesh. But what was being collected within the sieve was the debris, apostate Israel. The, the pebbles here, the word kernel there in the NAS actually is the word pebble. And God wanted to make the picture clear that I'm going to collect and all of the faithful will be saved, but I'm going to collect all of the unfaithful and apostate. My sieve is big enough to do that, and I will bring judgment. Upon those, just as the debris would be gotten rid of and burned, so too that would take place with those who had sinned against God in Israel. 
as he says in verse 10, all the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Again, because God's judgment is unavoidable. And after hearing this, I'm sure that would be of some encouragement to the faithful ones that they would not be caught up within the same judgment as the unfaithful. But they must have also been wondering, well, God's saying here that he's going to destroy Israel forever. Does that mean that God is doing away with Israel from this point on? What about his promise to Abraham? What about his promise to David that he'd have an everlasting throne? What what about all the promises that he gave through the prophets? What about our children's future? And to answer this, Amos ends his prophecy by giving them the hope of restoration. Look at Amos 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. And I will restore, also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. This picture is quite a different picture than what he's been describing all through Amos to this point, isn't it? Here there is no message of judgment upon the people. He begins in verse 11 with, In that day, meaning a future period after the judgment, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Now what is the booth of David? What's he referring to here? Normally you'd see the term house of David in reference to the Davidic dynasty, the monarchy of David, which God had promised through him that his descendant would reign, <coughs> excuse me, on the throne forever. So why did he say booth here? Well, booth was uh, primarily used often to describe a temporary structure, a temporary shelter that soldiers would uh, put together in time of battle, where they'd get some sticks and branches and leaves and kind of put a makeshift hut together that would not last very long. It was a flimsy shelter. And so calling it here the booth of David instead of the house of David refers to the fact that conveys the idea that the Davidic dynasty was in a weakened state, that the kingdom was in disrepair. The nation was divided, right? The people of Israel had gone apostate. Judah wasn't far behind, as we're going to see in some of the prophets soon. Instead of enjoying, enjoying the prosperity and security under a powerful and strong monarchy, as in the days of David, Israel was now more like a dilapidated hut. But God commits here in these verses to restore Israel to her former glory. It will be like as in the days of old, God says. Those days when the kingdom was unified under the reigns of David and Solomon. Times of great prosperity and blessing and protection and fellowship with God. And though Amos says explicitly here, he doesn't say explicitly who that one in the Davidic dynasty would be that would come and establish this time of peace and prosperity. We know who that is, right? The Messiah, right? Which is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12 adds that in that day, Israel would possess those left in Edom as well as all the nations who are called by his name. This is a reference to the fact that in that day, there will be Gentiles who are faithful to the Lord. 
will be there. Edom is mentioned here likely because it it's often used to represent all the nations. But I think, too, that the word Edom or Edom sounds very familiar to the Hebrew word Adam. In fact, they're spelled very similarly. Adam means man or mankind. I think uh, what he's doing here in the Greek translation, the Septuagint takes it this way as it translates it anthropon, which is of men. That's the way James uses it in Acts 15, 17 as well. So the idea that he's communicating here is those Gentiles from all the nations surrounding Israel, Gentiles who are faithful to the Lord. It's giving the picture here that Israel, when Israel is restored under the Messiah's reign, not only will there be those Jews that are faithful to Christ, there will also be Gentiles there, which is beginning to sound a little like the millennial kingdom, isn't it? More on that when we get to Zechariah. And his prophecy. Verses 13 to 15 here in Amos 9. Amos goes on to talk about the prosperity that will take place in the land. That they will dwell there securely. That the vineyards will be overflowing. That the gardens will be lush. That the the land will be productive. In fact, so productive, he gives the picture here of uh, the the guy actually is doing the harvesting. The the one coming behind him to sow the next crop is trying to rush him off. Because the crops are coming so profusely and so frequently. They can't even get through harvesting them before they're ready to do another. It's this picture of great uh, physical prosperity and blessing. He says that the land will be so fruitful that the mountains will be flowing with sweet wine. And that word there actually refers to juice that has been freshly squeezed from grapes. We could insert like Welch's or something like that. The idea is that there'll be so much it's going to be dripping from the mountains, so to speak. We see in verse 14... Again, he describes these rich gardens and lush fruit and secure cities. It's really a return to Eden. It's the same picture Joel gives of the restoration of Judah in Joel 3.18 when he says, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Same phrase. The hills will flow with milk. All the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And then we come to verse 15 where Amos declares the permanency of God's restoration And he does this by echoing a phrase that was given through the prophet Nathan to King David in 2 Samuel 7. That was the time when God had promised, as I mentioned before, God had promised David that he would have descendants reigning on his throne forever in Israel. In that same time, when that was promised to David, David was also told these words in 2 Samuel 7.10. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Again, it sounds a lot like Amos 9.15. There's a connection here. What Amos is describing is the messianic reign of Christ. And he's describing the blessing that they will experience in that day. And here at the end of Amos's prophecy, a prophecy that's been full of judgment and consequences for sin, Amos declares a future restoration of national ethnic Israel in keeping with the promises that he made to David and to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, that they would dwell securely in a fruitful land under the Messiah and be a blessing to all the nations. Now, this promise of Israel's restoration isn't unique to Amos. In fact, we see it all through the prophets. We've already seen it when we looked at Obadiah and again in Joel. And it's also found in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, 
in um, Isaiah and many of the other minor prophets. We're going to see some more again later. And there are a lot of questions that come up in regards to this. It's a major component, this restoration of Israel within the prophetic literature and the message that were delivered in these prophecies. But there are several questions that we need to consider. Has the promise to restore them been fulfilled? Who is the promise for ultimately? How are we to interpret these Old Testament promises in light of the church and in light of the new covenant? For you see, these questions come up because of how many of these Old Testament prophecies are referred to in the New Testament. And there's one example I want to take you to in Acts 15. Acts 15, if you could turn there with me. In Acts 15, a debate had arisen. It was describing and chronicling a situation where a debate had arisen in the early church regarding the Gentiles and their salvation. Gentiles were being saved and there were those in the church who felt that they needed to uh, be circumcised and conform to Mosaic law, essentially to become Jews before they could be considered Christians. If they were to be come under the Messiah, then they must come in as a Jew. And so they had wanted to impose these things, circumcision and these other things, upon the Gentiles. And there were those others within the church who were saying, no, 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 that's, that's not necessary at all. And so they gathered at Jerusalem. The apostles were there. The, the key elders in the church at Jerusalem were there to discuss this. And a big debate uh, took place there, a heated argument. Peter, he got up and he related his experience. Uh, we read about in Amos, uh, you can read about in Amos 10, where God had shown him that vision of the, the blanket with the animals on it. And he said, kill and eat. And that was a reference to tell him that go, go to the Gentiles. And he had one in particular, Cornelius and his household in Joppa. And Peter went and saw how God had saved that household and realized, and he says in Acts 15, that he recognized salvation was by grace alone and that it wasn't by keeping the law and that there was no difference between Jew and Gentile. Paul and Barnabas then stood up and they gave testimony as to what God was doing through them with the Gentile people and how God was saving them and how everything that had taken place in Jerusalem was taking place across the region. And after they finished, James speaks. Look at Acts 15. I'll be beginning in verse 13. See what James says. After they'd stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by his name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, if it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Then James goes on to describe some things to, to write to encourage them. But as we look at what James said, does it sound familiar at all? He's quoting from Amos. Amos 9, 11 and 12. Now, there are some differences if you compare the two passages, but the gist of Amos is preserved here. And some say that James' quote here means that what Amos prophesied in chapter 9 has been completely fulfilled. They say that because we see the Gentiles being saved, therefore the fallen booth of David must also be restored now then. 
they would say James' quote of Amos is to say that the Gentiles don't be, need to be held to the old covenant anymore because the new covenant has taken place, that it's been fulfilled. And so by extension, the church then is the recipient of the restoration promises that were described in the prophets, such as in Amos. Those who hold to this opinion would quote Matthew 21, 43, where Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders of Israel, said this, The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. They say that what Jesus meant there was that because Israel had rejected the Messiah, they would be replaced or superseded by the church. I've just opened up a huge can here. Time doesn't permit to address all the issues regarding Israel and the church and all that is involved in that, but we need to at least understand enough to know what to do with the minor prophets, don't we? I mean, how do we take these prophecies in in the Old Testament? Are they to Israel or do they apply to the church? The blessings that are mentioned here, are they physical, literal blessings? Are they spiritual ones to be uh, obtained, to be had by the church? In light of James' quote and the birth of the church, how do we interpret these promises, promised passages? Who do they apply to? Is Israel even God's intended audience at all? And then what do the, these descriptions of fruitful vines and rich land and secure dwelling places, what do they mean then? How is the church related to these things? Well, to answer these questions, we, we have to remember, in interpreting any passage, Old Testament or New, the first basic hermeneutic or rule of interpretation is to determine what is it that the original author intended for the original audience to understand. Who is speaking and to whom is he speaking to? So looking at Amos, who is the author in Amos? Who's the author? Amos. Now, first hour was smarty pants. They said God. But okay, God. But you guys, are, you're with it more. Amos. God's speaking through Amos. Who's the audience? How do you know? How do you know? Amos 1.1. 1, 1. The words of Amos, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel. Amos 3.1. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel. Amos 5.1. Hear this word, O house of Israel. Amos 9.7. Are you not as sons of Cush to me, O sons of Israel? And again in 9.14, he says, my people Israel. All throughout the book of Amos, he's speaking to a group of people. He's referencing them directly, saying Israel. Now, who are the people that Amos is speaking to? Who are the ones he is later writing to? National, ethnic Israel, Jews. The people of God. In Amos, God is telling national ethnic Israel one day he would restore them. There's no indication at all here in Amos 9, 11 through 15 or any of the other prophetic texts regarding restoration that the speaker is talking to some distant group of Jew and Gentile out there in the future. There's nothing in the passage that indicates that at all. Yes, Gentiles are mentioned here in Amos 9. And yes, he is speaking of the future. But again, his audience is Israel. Theologian George Peters said this. If no restoration was intended, he's referencing these uh, prophetic texts. If no restoration was intended for Israel, if all was to be understood typically or spiritually or conditionally, then surely the language was most eminently calculated to 
to deceive the hearers. That's a serious charge. But would it not be disingenuous for God to make a promise to a group of people that He didn't intend to keep? And if this was going on in the Old Testament passages, if we can't be certain who the audience actually is because it's not the one that the speaker is speaking to, what does that do when we go to the New Testament? Who then is Paul really writing to? Who then are the authors of the Gospels really writing to? Are we the church's ultimate audience or somebody else? How can we know for sure? I mean, do you see how when you, when you start thinking this way, how it really throws uh, all biblical interpretation, it puts it on precarious ground. Who then in the end is he talking to? Who am I talking to? I'm not really talking to you. I'm talking to some other group on the Internet. We see that a lot on TV, right? I won't go there. Um, anyway, who am I talking with? Speaking to you, my brothers and sisters here at Calvary Bible. I'm using words and communication that I'm hoping you understand because my intent is to communicate to you just as it was for the authors of the Old and New Testament. Now, there are obvious times like Isaiah 40 and other places where he is speaking to another audience, but we have clues within the text to tell us that. And here in Amos, we have no clue that he's speaking to any other group except particularly the northern tribes of Israel, but also at times to all the nations and also at times to Judah. But that's made clear in the passage. And in addition to that, if you think about Amos 9, 13 to 15, that talks about all these physical blessings. What do those mean then if there's not really physical blessings? Are they literal or are they spiritual? And how would the hearers know that from the text? Yes, there's figurative language here. He's talking about mountains dripping sweet wine, but it is literal mountains and it is literal wine. He's speaking of literal gardens, a literal land, because everywhere else in Amos, it's literal. There's nothing in the text here to indicate they're to be understood spiritually. But if Amos 9, 11 through 15 is meant for the church, then what would a fruitful land mean? And how would Amos's originally original audience understand them to be if, if they were not told that these were spiritual rather than literal? Brothers and sisters, God is speaking through Amos to national Israel and promising them real physical blessing. So why did James quote Amos then? What was he getting at? What was his point? Was he implying that the restoration Amos spoke of was fulfilled in the church? Are the physical blessings mentioned upon Israel in Amos really spiritual blessings for the church? Again, what was the issue in Acts 15? Remember, what, what was the issue they were addressing there? Right? This whole point of Gentiles looked like they were getting saved and some thought they needed to be circumcised and follow the law and others were saying no. And so James, as he hears Peter talking in verse 14, Peter saying, taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name, that phrase triggers in James' mind a recollection of Amos 9, which uses almost the exact same phrase describing Gentiles who are being called by God's name. And so James quotes from Amos 9 because it is a passage which recognizes in God's program as he moves towards restoration of Israel, Gentiles will be saved. They will come to know the Lord. They will be called by his name. That is possessed by him. 
And the point is, is that if you look in the Amos text, there's nothing that Amos said that Gentiles, in order to be part of God's people, that they had to also adhere to the Mosaic law. And so James quotes that text to say, and neither do we need to hold them to that either. That makes sense? Clear as mud? <laughs> right? James is simply, look back at Amos when he talked about this event taking place, that there will indeed and God's plan to restore his people, there will indeed be Gentiles being saved, and they aren't going to need to be held to any of the Mosaic standards. That they will be saved by God's grace. James is saying, we're, we're not moving backwards to the Old Covenant. We're moving forwards towards the New. And in fact, let's look at the New Covenant again, the one that uh, from Jeremiah 31, which Bob read from earlier. If you could turn there, Jeremiah 31. I'm not going to be able to go through this text and the time remaining, but there are a couple things I want to point out to you that are important to consider in this discussion, particularly to whom God is speaking and, and also to the degree of His commitment. Jeremiah 31, again in verse 31, God says, Days are coming when I will make a new covenant, a new promise with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, so to whom was the new covenant specifically given? The church. What do you mean Israel? Why do you say that? Because that's what God said. And he even said Israel and Judah to make it very specific. At that time, Jeremiah was preaching to the exiles in Judah. So the kingdom was divided. He's saying, I'm going to make a covenant with my people, those in the northern tribes and also the tribe of Judah. And this is my covenant. I'll put my law on your heart. You'll be forgiven. I'll remember your sin no more. It's a promise that he made to the people of Israel. And just because the church does now participate in that, Bob even described as he was reading the passage here in Jeremiah, how God had transformed his heart. I mean, he was alluding to new covenant promises applying to him. And Bob's a Gentile, as far as I know. How could he do that? Wasn't this promise given to Israel? But see, we are allowed to participate in the blessings of it, the promise that Christ inaugurated when he died on the cross for our sins to make a means of forgiveness and to send his spirit to convert hearts and transform them in the power of God, by the power of God. And so we participate in this covenant, but it wasn't originally promised to Gentiles. You see that? I'm not saying there is no new covenant and it's not for Gentiles. We are part of it, but it wasn't originally promised to us. And the covenant is not yet fulfilled. Why? It's not completely fulfilled. Why? Israel and Judah right, are still not participating in it completely. There are Jews being saved, but God's promise has not been completely fulfilled. And just because, again, the church is included in it doesn't mean doesn't mean that it has to be fulfilled at this point. It will be fulfilled. And all this is to say this, that just because God made a promise to somebody else does not mean he can't allow for others to be included in that promise, right? And expanding the promise beyond the original group doesn't mean that it has to exclude that original group, right? It'd be like, for example, if I promised my children to take them out for a nice dinner, that promise to them doesn't restrict me from later inviting their friends, does it? Even though I didn't make the promise to their friends, I can include their friends within that promise. 
And by including their friends, that doesn't mean that I don't keep my original promise to my kids, does it? God made the promise to ethnic Israel. But he also has allowed for the church to benefit for that. But that doesn't mean his promise to them is now abrogated or done. Okay, so why why does all this matter? I mean, what's the big deal about Israel and the church and, and prophecy? I mean, isn't this really a conversation that should be had in seminary hallways and theological forums? Why here on a Sunday morning from the pulpit at church? Well, there's a few reasons. I've already mentioned one of them. It matters a lot because it affects how we interpret the Old Testament. How do we look at the prophets then? How are we to understand them? I mean, I'm in big trouble if I, you know, if, if I don't get it right. All of us are. We need to understand what God is saying. We need to understand how it applies to us. It also, how we understand these things reflects upon God's character. If what God said to the original audience through the prophets wasn't intended for that original audience, ultimately, what does that say about God? Does he really mean what he says? What does that tell us about his sincerity? And for me, one of the biggest reasons that this matters is that it reflects not only upon God's integrity, but also upon his loyalty and his faithfulness. Because again, God promised. He made a promise to restore Israel, his people, ethnic Israel to the land. And he promised this not only in Amos 9, but many, many times. All through the prophets, he made the same promise to them, that they would experience physical blessings in the land and they would never be taken from it again. Now, was God lying when he said this? Was he making a promise he didn't intend to keep for Israel? Yes, Israel rejected the Messiah. Paul says in Romans 11, though, that God had not abandoned them completely, but has allowed this rejection, their present rejection, to be a door, an opening for Gentiles to come to the faith. He says in Romans 11:25, I do not want you, brethren, and he's speaking here to Romans, to Gentiles, but he's speaking of fellow Israelites. He says in Romans 11:1, 1, my uh, fellow uh, brothers in the flesh. He says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant, my promise with them when I take away their sins. Paul references... Old Testament prophecy regarding national Israel and saying they're not God's not done with them yet. He says in verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers, those to whom God made the promises for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Paul says the gifts, the calling of God are irrevocable. What does he mean by that? He's not going to go back on his word. He's going to keep his promises. And again, in Romans 11.1 and back in Romans 9.1, Paul's making very clear he's speaking of national ethnic Israel, his brothers according to the flesh. And when God promised the new covenant to Israel in verse 31 of Jeremiah, that's what he meant. 
And he gave the strongest possible reinforcement of that commitment. If you're still in Jeremiah 31, look down at verse 35. Notice what he says there. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Listen now, if this fixed order... Listen now. Sorry, that's my little insert. (laughs) Listen to this part. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. What's he saying there in verse 36? You know, I'll, I'll turn my back on Israel. I'll forsake them when the universe collapses. I'll forsake Israel when the universe is done. Right? He's not saying he's going to forsake Israel. What he's saying is it's not going to happen. The universe would have to completely go to nothing and be destroyed before I would break my promise to Israel. And then he went on to say, if you could measure the heavens and the fat, I mean, you could do these things that are immeasurable, then that, that would be a, a, an example, a situation I'd forget my people. But those things can't be measured. Hubble's still looking out there. It still hasn't found the end of the universe. Because God's affirming his commitment in the strongest possible way. And so to ignore or deny or, or replace God's promise to Israel, that, that undermines the faithfulness and loyalty of God. That's why this is a big deal. For if, we, if he would not keep his promises to them, what does that say about the promises he's made to us? But beloved, we, we serve a faithful and sincere God. One who will keep all the promises he's made. Right? He promised to send a deliverer. And he did. He promised that deliverer, Jesus, would be a substitute, an atonement, serve a punishment for our sins on the cross. And he did. He promised to forgive anybody who would confess their sins to that deliverer and seek his forgiveness. And he does. He promised He would grant eternal life to any who would turn from their sin and place their trust in the Deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He does. And He promised that He will return for His own and have fellowship with His bride, the church, with believers, with us for eternity. And He will. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much from your word that it's not easy to understand, Lord. And many good and and godly men differ on some of these things. Lord, I would just ask and pray and beseech you that you would give us clarity as to your word, that Lord, we would rightly divide and understand it and apply it so that in the end Jesus would be lifted up and honored so that He would be glorified, so that we would gain a a greater picture of You and be more in awe of who You are and what You have done. And and Lord, that keeping Your promises is is a, a big deal. It's important, Lord, for it reflects on Your character. And we know that You are a faithful and good and trustworthy God. We thank You for sending Christ, keeping Your promise to send a Savior. Lord Jesus, for you becoming a man to make that happen, to live a perfect life and to die an unjust death for our sins. Lord, please 
keep in mind, help us keep in mind, Lord, the things that we have learned from Amos today and previously, Lord, that we would especially be reminded that you are omnipresent, that you see everything. Lord, just remind us of that, especially this week, those times when we are tempted. Remind us of that. Remind us, Lord, when we are hurting or struggling or in trials, Lord, that you are there, that your presence not only to help keep us from sin, but also to encourage and comfort us. As you said in Psalm 46, you're an always present help in time of trouble. Lord, these are wonderful truths about you. By your Spirit, Lord, help us to remember them and to apply them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.